Amen. Please be seated. Let me uh, take a moment to uh, welcome our online audience as the live stream begins. Uh, I'm Pastor Dave Bissett. Good to have you here. But I'm not the preacher this morning, so I'd like to introduce our preacher to the congregation and to those viewing from home. Uh, In arranging this afternoon's installation service, it was a delight to hear that uh, a a classmate and friend of Brian's would be available to come for that special occasion, and so we asked if he would also preach this morning, and it is a treat. It's a good thing to expose a congregation to other men with the gift for preaching and those that are faithful to God's word. His name is John Miller. I've known John uh, just as an acquaintance through the Banner Truth Conferences. He comes from Carlisle, Pennsylvania, beautiful historic city there, and the historic Grace Baptist Church where Walter Chantry was once uh, a pastor and he was a mentor to me. It's a dear congregation, a healthy congregation, and John has been their senior pastor since 2017. Uh, He had previously been an intern in some capacities a couple of times at the church, and that's how they had previously become acquainted with him. He's a graduate of Greenville Seminary in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, and he's done a Master of Theology degree from Puritan Theological Seminary in uh, Grand Rapids, where he met uh, Brian. Uh, John is married, his wife Elizabeth, and he have four children. Their oldest is Catherine, spelled the correct way. Kristen, Nathan, and Samuel. And uh, we're so thankful uh, that John is able to be here and for his church to uh, let him minister God's word here both this morning and this afternoon. So uh, let's give our full attention to this dear brother. Welcome, John. God bless you. I do bring you greetings from Grace Baptist Church. It was a delight to be talking with Pastor Bissett yesterday just about his long connection with the church uh, there, Uh, and it was actually Pastor Walt, I understand, who came and did David's installation service here uh, back in 1995. Well, this morning we're going to consider a scene from the book of Exodus. Uh, It's there, I believe, in the bulletin, but if you'd like to turn there as well, please do turn to Exodus chapter 5. This Of course, the book of Exodus gives us the central redemptive event in the whole of the Old Testament, that is, the redemption of God's people from slavery in Egypt. Now, earlier in this chapter, we're going to be beginning at the end of the chapter, earlier in this chapter, what you have is the beginning of the great contest between the Lord and Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron came and spoke the word of the Lord to the elders and the people of Israel, and then they went to Pharaoh himself and declared that great statement that they said more than once, thus says the Lord, let my people go. But Pharaoh, you may recall, responds with defiance. And he has a statement of his own. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? You see, Pharaoh believes he's the sovereign ruler over all of Egypt. He believes that he's a son of the gods. He responds with his own declaration later in chapter 5, verse 10, saying, Thus says Pharaoh. And he increases the burden on Israel, gives them no straw, and says they must make the same number of bricks. You remember how the people of Israel respond very disheartened, deeply discouraged, They even turn against Moses and Aaron. 
the first of many times they will turn against their leaders. So the question is, what is Moses to do now? How does he respond? And how does the Lord respond? And that's what we come to in our text. We'll pick it up in chapter 5, verse 22. And read down to chapter 6, verse 13. Hear now God's holy word. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel from the Egyptians, which the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his, his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am an, of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Amen. Let's pray together again briefly. Our Lord and our God, as we come to your word, our great desire is to hear your voice, that we may be a people who come to know you and to know you more. As you said to the prophet Jeremiah, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. These are the things that you delight in. So, Lord, would you, by your Spirit, enable us to know you through your word proclaimed and heard today. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. What do you do when following the Lord does not turn out the way that you may have expected? When God's ways in your life become perplexing to you, 
When obeying the Lord seems to make your circumstances get harder and more difficult instead of easier. For example, think of a man who's an employee, he's an unbeliever for many years, and then in God's great power and might, he saves him. He gives him a new heart with new desires. And so he begins to do his work in a different way. Instead of sloughing off when the boss isn't looking, he's working as unto the Lord, day in and day out. He begins to obey the Lord concerning the Lord's day. He does all these things in obedience to God. But then he's denied promotions. He's scoffed at and mocked by his fellow co-workers. His life did not get easier. It got harder. Or think about being Christian parents who, by God's grace, seek to obey the Lord in raising your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And you've prayed and labored and sought to put the word of God before your children. But as you know, not all children who grow up in a Christian home become Christians. And some Christian parents, they struggle and wrestle as they see their children grow up and have hardened hearts against the Lord. It's perplexing to them. Or think of the pastor. The pastor who's called to a church that's been without the gospel for many years. And he comes and he's patiently, faithfully preaching the gospel. And gospel light is now once again shining from that beacon. But instead of the congregation growing, it shrinks. It's not what he was expecting. He's even opposed by prominent members that have remained in the church that don't like what he's preaching. Life gets more difficult instead of easier. Well, this is similar, isn't it, to the situation that's occurred here in Exodus chapter 5. Moses and Aaron have obeyed the Lord. The Lord told them, go and speak to Israel. Then after that, go to Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, and speak to them the word that I tell you. And so they do, they go, and now the situation's gone from bad to worse. Pharaoh's increased his oppression of God's people. And Israel's turned against Moses and Aaron. What's going on? John Calvin, in commenting on this passage, says this. This passage teaches us that when God has begun to regard us for the purpose of relieving our troubles, he sometimes takes the occasion to increase the pressure of our burdens. And that's what we see going on here. It doesn't mean that we understand why. So this morning, as we work our way through this passage, I want us to ask and answer two questions concerning what to do in perplexing times. First question is this, what should we as God's people do when we're perplexed by God's ways? That's what we'll see in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 5. But then a more important question, what does God do when his people are perplexed by his ways? That's what we'll see in chapter 6. So first, then, let's think about this question. What should you do? What should God's people do when we're perplexed by God's ways? And I think it's important to begin by saying what we should not do. And we can see that in the example of the Israelite foreman. Now, we didn't read that, but it's what comes right before this passage. 
and the Israelite foreman and how they respond to what Pharaoh does in increasing the burden upon them. This harsh oppression. How do they respond? You can see it there in verse 15. It says, Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh. The first thing that they did is they turned in the midst of their oppression to their oppressor, to Pharaoh. They think that somehow he will help them. They think that he will be someone who will be understanding, even reasonable. But as the passage and as the rest of the book of Exodus shows, Pharaoh is a cruel taskmaster who's bent on Israel's destruction. But that's who they turn to. And then, if that weren't enough, after going to Pharaoh and hearing him kind of reject their pleas and appeals, they walk out of being in the audience with with Pharaoh, and they see Moses and Aaron, and what do they do? They take out their anger and frustration on them. In fact, if you notice there in verse 21, if you have your Bible open, it says, they said to them, that is the Israelite foreman said to Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge because you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And the original is stronger than that. They're actually pronouncing a curse upon Moses and Aaron. They reject God's servants. And in doing so, they've rejected God and his word. So you see how we're not to respond. But beloved, isn't this picture of an unbelieving response so often our response? When difficult things are occurring in our life, as we're seeking to be faithful, we can be perplexed. And in those moments of of confusion, we go to our sin. We go to that which we think will bring some kind of relief, some kind of solace, some comfort. We seek an escape from the hardship. Maybe it's binge watching for hours, scrolling through social media, getting lost in some kind of romance novel, whatever it might be. We, we turn to something else, thinking the things in this world are what will bring us relief. So often it just draws us into deeper bondage and even destruction. In perplexing times, the other thing that we can do is we can become angry at God. We can even become angry at brothers and sisters who come and seek to bring us the word of God. We don't want to listen to them. We don't want to hear it. And we can reject them. We can say things like this. God's ways just don't work. I'm going back to my old ways. Before you think this is just a problem of God's people in the old covenant, let's remember this was an issue in the new covenant as well. The whole book of Hebrews is about this issue. Jewish Christians, Jews who become Christians, facing trial, facing persecution, and what's the temptation? To give it up and go back. And we so often can have that same kind of response. But that's not the response we're to have. So we see what not to do with the Israelite foreman, but coming to our particular passage, how does Moses respond? What do we learn from Moses' response? And at first, when you you see his response, it sounds similar to the Israelite foreman. 
After all, he too is confused. He too is perplexed. He too is discouraged with God's ways here. You notice how it begins in verse 22. O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? It begins with Moses questioning God. Why? Did you ever send me, he says. These are so often our questions as well. Why, Lord, are you allowing this co-worker to persecute me? Why, Lord, did you allow my loved one to die of cancer when I was in the midst of witnessing to them? Why, God? Moses, as we see, even questions God's calling of him. Why did you ever even send me? You remember back in in the earlier part in Exodus chapter 4, when God meets with Moses there in the burning bush at Mount Horeb, uh, Moses gives excuse after excuse after excuse, and he says, oh, please, Lord, send someone else. (laughs) And remember, God's response was anger and said, go, I'll give you Aaron, but you go. Well, in a sense, it's now Moses saying to God, I told you so. I told you you shouldn't have sent me. You sent me, and now look what's happened. Things have gotten worse. More so, we can say this. Moses is questioning what God not only is, but also what he isn't doing. See, like the Israelite foreman, Moses is beginning to assign blame. And he's blaming and accusing God. As he says there in verse 22, Why have you, God? done evil to this people. He uses this language, done evil. In the very next part of the verse, he says that Pharaoh, he has done evil to this people. It's almost as if Moses is equating God and Pharaoh and saying that, God, you're you're doing evil. And worse than this, he accuses God of not being faithful to his promises. And that's how he ends, saying, you have not delivered your people at all. Moses is saying, this is all your fault, God. And in this, we're reminded once again that Moses is a man like us with clay feet. He is not a sinless man. It's a reminder that Moses, the great deliverer of the Old Testament, is one who's in need of a deliverer himself. So we see how Moses responds, but did you notice the difference? Did you notice the difference in the way Moses responded and the way the Israelite foreman responded? It seems small, but it's a crucial difference. The Israelite foreman complained to Pharaoh and they cursed Moses and Aaron, but Moses takes his complaint to the Lord. He goes to the Lord. In his confusion, in his perplexity, he turns to the Lord. In the midst of increasing darkness in the world around him, he turns to the one who is the source of life and light. And in that fact, this is an expression of Moses' faith. And you see here, we have then the answer to our question. What are we to do when we are perplexed? By God's ways, we are to go to God. 
We are to pray to him. We are to bring our struggle, to bring our confusion, to bring our questions to the Lord. And this is what you see throughout the scriptures, isn't it? This is what distinguishes God's people from other people. It's not that they don't have trials. It's not that they don't have troubles. It's not that they're not perplexed or confused. It's that when they are, they go to the Lord. This is what Job did. You think of all that Job suffered. Not only, yes, the loss of many possessions, but of his own dear children. Ten children. Dead in one day. The loss of his own health. Certainly perplexed, but what does he do? He does things like this in Job 13, 24. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? He goes to the Lord and asks the question. When you think of David, the Lord's anointed, anointed by Samuel. And right after his anointing and uh, all the things that happened that were kind of the height with Goliath, Saul tries to kill him. And he's on the run for his life. This happens more than once in his life with his own son Absalom. This is where we get Psalms like Psalm 10 that begin with these words, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? David's perplexed. I've thought him, you're anointed. And this is what's happening. He comes, he brings his struggle to the Lord. Or think in the New Testament of, of John the Baptist, the greatest of the old covenant prophets. I'm partial to his name because that's my nickname, John the Baptist. Uh, but John the Baptist, the prophet who was mighty in power and, and proclaimed, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, the Messiah is coming. And then later is arrested, is imprisoned, and he's wondering. I thought the Messiah is he's supposed to come and, and bring the kingdom. And he looks around and he's in prison and he's wondering, Are you, is Jesus really him? Remember how he sends his disciples to go and ask Jesus, are you really the one to come or shall we look for another? He brings his question to Jesus. Or perhaps you can think of what we could call the most perplexing moment in all of human history. When Jesus himself is there hanging on the cross, the innocent, sinless one. And the very wrath of his heavenly father is being poured out upon him as he bears the sins of his people. And what does Jesus say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So you see, this is what we are to do. In our perplexity, we come and we ask God these questions, but the very expression of them to God is an expression of clinging to him, even though we don't understand what's going on. And so, beloved, know this, the Lord will not turn away from you as you turn to him, even in the midst of your perplexities. So that's what we're to do. But what about this second question? What does God do when his people are perplexed by his ways? This is what we see mostly here in chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. 
And once again, I think it's helpful to begin by seeing what God does not do. He does not harshly rebuke Moses for coming with these questions. He doesn't say, why are you asking me this? Don't you know who I am? He also does not immediately act to bring relief to Moses, does he? He doesn't say, you know, Moses, you're right. I'm not really doing much. I'll go ahead now and just kind of take the people of Israel. We'll we'll get you out of Egypt right now. He doesn't do that. No, God will act. He will act at the right time, just as he has promised. But that's not the first thing that he does. The very first thing that God does in response to Moses is to speak. Is to speak. Is to preach to Moses. The first thing that God does is to give Moses a sermon. Have you ever thought of that reality? That in your perplexity, the first thing that you need is to hear a sermon. You see, God is here reminding Moses of who he is and what he has said and what he will do. You see, it's more important for us to understand and know God than it is to be relieved of our troubles. So God once again reveals himself to Moses and he also calls Moses to go and preach this same message to Israel. But let's look at God's sermon. What does God reveal about himself to Moses? You could say it's really two things. The first thing he reveals about himself is this, that he is the sovereign Lord. Notice chapter 6, verse 1 again. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. He's saying, I am the one who is in control of all things, Moses. Nothing has occurred that was unexpected to me. He says with that word, now. He's saying, everything is going according to my plan. What Pharaoh has done to you is part of my plan. It was never God's intention for Israel to depart through Pharaoh's generosity. As though it would just take Moses and Aaron going one time and saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh saying, okay, I'll let you go. That's never God's plan. Because God's purpose is to make himself known. It's only after that has been made clear to Israel, to Egypt, and indeed the whole world, that Israel will be delivered from Egypt. Read through later, if you have the time, this week, through the ten plagues, and notice how many times God says, that you may know that I am the Lord, that the world may know my might and my power, that Egypt would know God's purpose is to make himself and his glory known. That it's God's mighty hand that redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. See the strong statement as he says there in verse 1. You shall see what I will do 
What I will do, and he uses the language of a strong hand. It's the language that he used back at Mount Horeb at the burning bush, saying how he would save his people by a mighty hand. I will stretch out my hand, Exodus 3, verse 20. And God is so powerful, so completely sovereign, you see, that by his mighty hand, he will cause Pharaoh by the end of all the plagues, by the end of all his dealings, not only to let Israel go, but to drive them out. You see, God is teaching Moses, God is teaching us to remember that he is in control. That everything is working out according to his plan and his perfect timing. And he's teaching us to be patient and to wait upon him. To trust him when we don't see the bigger picture. And to remember that God knows what he's doing. All for his good, our good and his glory. In a real sense, we look at all that's going on in the world. And we see what's happening in Ukraine. We see what's happening in China. And the push more for persecution against God's people there. And we on the outside can, can be saying, what's going on? Those Christians on the inside wondering, what are you doing, God? The message to remember is, I'm still on the throne, and I have my purposes. Trust me. You think about it with these situations. You think about communist China and how for so many years we in the West thought that the church was, was gone. And that's when it grew the most, was during those years. Well, you see, he's saying that he is the sovereign Lord. And then, uh, listen once again to Calvin. I think he has a helpful statement about this. He says, It was indeed possible for God to overwhelm Pharaoh at once by a single nod uh, so that he could even fall down dead at the very sight of Moses, but God chose more clearly to lay open his power. For if Pharaoh had either voluntarily yielded or had been overcome without effort, the glory of the victory would not have been so illustrious. God wished to accustom his servants in all ages to patience, lest they should faint in their minds if he does not immediately answer their prayers and at every moment relieve them from their distresses. No, he is the sovereign Lord. But that's not all he says. In his sermon to Moses, after he's emphasizing the fact that he is the sovereign Lord, he also says that he is our covenant Lord. He is our covenant Lord. Notice the emphasis throughout God's sermon. This phrase, this refrain that's repeated, I am the Lord. And you notice in your English Bibles that it is Lord in all caps. I am Yahweh. The covenant name of God. He says it there in verse 2. I am the Lord. He says it there in uh, verse 6. Say therefore to the people, I am the Lord. He says it again in verse 7. I am the Lord. And he ends the sermon with those words in verse 8. I am the Lord. If you wonder what his point is, he's made it very clear. Why though? Why does he repeat the phrase four times, I am Yahweh? 
One reason is, is because this was the royal formula commonly used in the ancient Near East by kings when they were giving royal edicts. All kings would begin their edicts with this kind of statement, I am Sargon, and then they'd say their edict. And here it is, I am Yahweh. It's emphasizing again his sovereignty, that these words carry the force of a royal decree, not of just the king of an earthly nation, but the king of all creation and the universe. It's also a way of him, in this sense, showing the solemnity of these words. Think about weddings. There was a wedding recently, I hear, and another one coming, I hear. And you think about those, those times when you make those vows. Solemn, the most solemn moment where really the marriage is occurring. The covenant vows are being made by husband and wife. And it's in those moments that you say your name, right? I remember distinctly. I, John, take you, Elizabeth, to be my lawfully wedded wife. Now, why do I say my name? Do I not know it? Does she not know it? Does everyone there not know it? Of course not. But it's because of the solemnity of what's happening. With all that I am, I, John, am saying this vow to you. And in a sense, that's what God is doing. I am the Lord. With all that I am, I am saying these things to you. I am the Lord, the great king. Hear my decree. But there's another reason that he says this phrase, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. It's because he's reminding Moses of everything that he had said to him already at Mount Horeb in the burning bush. It's a reminder to us how often we need to be reminded of things we've heard before. Almost everything that God says to Moses here is what he said there. But he's wanting to remind him especially of how he revealed his name to him there. You remember how Moses asked the question there at Mount Horeb, Oh, what if I go to your people and they say, Who is it that sent you? Who am I supposed to say sent me? And his answer is, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. You remember, you remember how that is the very phrase. I am, from which we get Yahweh in that sense. It's all connected in that way. You notice in chapter 5, verse 22 here, when God, or when Moses addresses God, he says, O Lord, not all caps, it's O Adonai. He doesn't address him as Yahweh. And it's as though God is reminding him, I'm not just Adonai, I'm Yahweh. He's reminding him that he is the God who has bound himself to his people by way of covenant and that he will be faithful to keep every one of the covenant promises that he has made. That's what he emphasizes over and over. He says in verse 4, I also established my covenant with them. He's entered into this covenant relationship. He's made these solemn vows and promises. And what is a covenant? can be a very sticky question to answer. But I think the simplest definition of a covenant is this. It's an oath-bound promise. Not just a promise that's given, but swearing to keep that promise. 
God often gives promises, and then because of the weakness of the faith of the one who received that promise, he then also makes oaths to keep that promise. That's what happened with Abraham. God, we remember in Genesis chapter 12, comes and gives promises to him. Promises of a place, of a people, of protection, and promises of a part to play in God's plan of redemption, right? These are wonderful promises given to Abraham. But we see as he walks with the Lord, there's times where he doubts, times where he wonders. So in Genesis 15, where he's wondering, will I really have a son to be heir? God then enters into covenant. He wraps up that promise in an oath. He enters into covenant with Abraham. He does that. And that's what he's saying. I've done. Not only have I given promises to my people, Israel, but I've entered into covenant. I will be faithful then to keep my covenant because that's who I am. I am Yahweh, your covenant God. Notice verse 3 again. He says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. Verse 5, moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. But what does God mean when he says in verse 3 these words? But by my name, the Lord, or Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, what does God mean when he says he did not make himself known by his name Yahweh to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but as El Shaddai, El Shaddai, God Almighty. You see that in Genesis 17. God's referred to as God Almighty. This has been a perplexing question to many scholars, and unbelieving scholars use this as a way to say that in the Old Testament first five books weren't all written by Moses, it's split up by different people over different times. But we know that's not the case. It's God's word given by God's servant Moses to us. And when you read through Genesis, you realize Yahweh, the Lord, all caps, is all throughout. It's there in Genesis chapter 2. In fact, in Genesis chapter 12, it says that Abraham called on the name of Yahweh. So he knew the name. So what does this mean? That he did not make his name known. Some try to deal with this by changing what God says here in Exodus chapter 6 to say, did I not make my name known? But that's not what the Hebrew actually says. What God is saying is this. He's not saying that they did not know his name at all, that they did not know Yahweh, but that they did not experience the full significance of it. They did not experience the full meaning of the God who keeps all his covenant promises. That he is the God who brings his promises to complete fulfillment. You remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all died not seeing the promise fulfilled. But he is the God who brings his promises to fulfillment. He is the I am who is ever present with his people. And that's the point he makes in verse 5. I have heard and I have remembered my covenant. Then what you see him doing as he's saying, I'm your covenant Lord to to keep covenant with you. He goes on in verses 6 to 8 to charge Moses to preach this same message to Israel in the midst of their discouragement. And he says 
he begins with the same message. Verse 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you. So he begins with that statement, the I am the Lord statement. And then you have what I call the seven I wills of God. Seven times he says what I will do. I will certainly do this. You can summarize those seven into three things. I will deliver you. You will have relief from your burdens, but not just yet. I will deliver you, but at the right time. You will know freedom from slavery, but not yet. Then he goes on to say, I will redeem you. That glorious word of redemption, it's the idea of buying someone back, paying all their debts. And you remember the beautiful story of Ruth, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, that near relation who comes and redeems her and Naomi. That points to the fact that this redemption also bears with it relationship. And God is saying, I will redeem you and I will bring you to myself. Relationship is there clearly in verse 7, where he says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out. It's pointing us to the heart of the covenant promises. In every covenant, it says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. So he says, I will deliver you, I will redeem you, and bring you into relationship with me. And then he ends by saying, I will bring you into the land I swore. I will give you the inheritance. I will bring you into the promised land. So you see, God encourages Moses. He encourages Israel by reminding them of who he is, their Lord, the God who is with them and who will bring all of his promises to pass. And he's encouraging them to trust him as their sovereign covenant Lord. But beloved, you need to remember God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because that's true, the Lord Jesus through this word comes to you this morning and says to you, remember, dear one, I am your covenant Lord. I am the covenant Lord of the new covenant, of an even better and greater covenant. Jesus comes and he says to you, I will redeem you completely. I will be with you until the end of the age. And I have gone to prepare a place for you. And I will return and bring you to be with me forever in the new heavens and the new earth. You see, beloved, whatever your perplexity is this morning, and I don't know what that is, but the Lord does. Listen to the words of your blessed Savior saying to you, I am your covenant Lord. Well, in closing, what is the response of Israel when Moses goes and says these things to them? We see there in verse 9, they don't listen. There's two reasons given why they don't listen. One is because they have a broken spirit. The other reason is the harsh slavery. You need to recognize this. Though they don't believe... Though they are in one sense faithless, God remains faithful. God remains true. 
You read through the rest of the book of Exodus and you see God does exactly what he said he would do. He turns these despairing slaves into delivered sons. And beloved, you can trust your covenant Lord and cling to this truth. I am the Lord your God. In any perplexity, in any difficulty, even when you're on your deathbed, even when you're at the end of your life, close with this illustration. Maybe you're familiar with Ebenezer Erskine. He was a Scottish minister uh, in Scotland, uh, part of the seceders. And in 1745, he was on his deathbed. One of the men in his parish came to visit him and said to him this, Sir, you've given us much good advice over the years, but pray, what are you now doing with your own soul? Parishioner seeking to minister to his pastor. And Erskine replied, saying this, I'm now doing with it what I did with it nearly 40 years ago. I am resting on that word, I am the Lord your God. And on that word, I mean to die. Beloved, we can live and we can die on that word as well. I am the Lord your God. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for the way that you are patient with us in our perplexities and in our difficulties. And you're merciful to us and you come to us and minister to us by your word. O Lord, would you drive this word deep into our souls and help us to be nourished by it and to live upon it for all our days until you bring us home. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.